Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following podcast was originally recorded in August of 2005 in Santa Monica, California. It is another in the series of archival sessions that were previously recorded on older media formats and have now been remastered for higher quality sound for the podcast channel. This one is called Proper Identification. Often people turn to some form of spiritual understanding or theory in the hopes of hearing a philosophy that makes sense of the world, that makes some sort of purpose or meaning, and alleviates the kind of feelings of, of madness about existence. And also, people look for some kind of theory or myth or religious perspective to make sense of their own misery and madness. But in my experience, the actual spiritual life throws you into the unknown. You know less and less. And you can't hold on to any theory. You just don't know. And it's my opinion that nobody else knows either. (laughs) So then what? Then what is the spiritual life? What happens is, again, in my direct experience... There's a loosening of the grip of identification with the little me, the personal me, the one that used to get all the attention, and a broadening of the identification into what you could call a more universal sense of self. That's all. In this loosening of this grip into the broadening of the identification, bigger and bigger sense of self, all kinds of interesting things happen. The relief you were looking for in theory, in ideas, in philosophy, in fact you find without theory or philosophy, you find in a feeling of connectedness, in a feeling of eternity also. Because no matter what destruction you're looking at, there's a sense that the force that bloomed it in the first place is still going on and will still continue to bloom. So the relief comes not for your own personal story, necessarily, but in the universal story. And this, oddly enough, has a very kind of liberating effect on your own personal story. And even has an effect of allowing you to care about little things 
tender little things. You care about them very deeply because you have a much wider perspective that allows you to care about the little things very deeply. For instance, I know many of you who've been here a lot have heard this, but my own teacher was an incredible example of someone who had this universal connection of, or identification. You felt like he was just, his mind was more or less merged with the stars and, you know, just <laughs> galactic. But he really cared about little specific things. How much did you pay for those bananas? What train are you on? Have you been to the crocodile park? <laughs> he would always send he would always send us to this this most depressing cro- crocodile park in Lucknow, India, with you know just these dirty ponds with these poor crocodiles laying in them or laying on the side. <laughs> but he cared about all these little things. When it came time to die. He simply just said to the people around him, they wanted to keep prolonging the intervention, and he didn't want that. He was in a hospital, he was old, and his body was falling apart. And he said, no, boss, meaning just enough. No, it's enough. It's over. <laughs> just like that. And probably the previous week he was, he was asking about how much you paid for the bananas, that kind of fluidity whereby you are connected to the details and you and you do have a personal life and you do care about the things that happen in your life and you you want what you want and all those things about life but it starts to loosen up into this very big free feeling whereby you have this as i'm often saying this coexisting awareness of oh the you know, the galaxies are coming and going in this field of whatever this is. And in my own little personal life, I want to have this thing happen or make this plan or go on this trip. And that's fair enough. But now it's not only about that. When it's only about, I want me, me, mine, I don't like it. When it's only about that, you're just miserable. Or if it's only about the miserable politics, the current situation, whatever it is. If the whole, if your whole awareness is just shrunk wrapped around these stories, you're just more and more upset, isn't it? And then you start desperately looking for something to make sense of it. Somebody tell me a story, a myth, a superstitious myth, make me feel better. But, you know, if you're a smart person and they tell you this silly myth, you, after a while, don't believe it. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no relief there. And you're continually thrown back. Where is this sanctuary? And you find it in this mystery that you can feel something is going, something's afoot. <laughs> there's, there's this... <laughs> There's this energetic blaze happening, and it's incredibly creative. It's shockingly, awesomely creative. And it's blooming and dying, blooming and dying, blooming and dying, creating and destroying. It's up to all kinds of of shenanigans every second. And you start to identify much more with that. And you notice, oh gosh, it just destroyed, it just 
just threw a hurricane over there and it just dropped all these bombs over there and it and all these babies are being born and and uh you know school starting and oh, always something up and always something disappearing your own awareness starts to merge more and more with this universal sense of the primordial energy. You still take care of your own life. You still want the things you want. And maybe you don't like the things you don't like, sure. But now, as I'm saying, it's no longer taking up all of your awareness. More and more, your awareness starts to delight in this other bigger place to play. And in that recognition, you also don't wear that as some sort of badge. You don't go floating above it all and speaking in spiritually pretentious language. On the day my brother died three years ago, a number of my friends found out and called that same day, hours later. And everybody said wonderful, heartful, beautiful things, really beautiful things, and not spiritually pretentious, things that were meaningful. But one of my friends called, and he's someone who's been on the path a long, long, long time. And the words that he said were the truest words I'd heard all day. And he just simply said, Catherine, I just heard the news. That sucks. <laughs> and, and he said, what, can I, he said, what else can I say? And I, and I said, no, you're, you said it exactly right. <laughs> because there are those moments when you just think, oh, this just sucks. There are times, there are circumstances, there are situations. What else to say? What else to say? But I knew, and I knew he knew, that there's the blaze of existence that is beautiful and that is shining, that is incredible. So there's the part that sucks, the destructive part sometimes, yes. And then there's the part that just is so beautiful, it's almost unbearable to witness. And we live on this range, you know, we live on this great, fantastic range. But as I'm saying tonight, the more you allow your awareness to range out into the big space, into the larger identification, with the primordial force, the more relief you will find. Hi, Catherine. Hi. So what ways to get out to that primordial force, to let oneself get there? I often speak about having 
a light intention, an intentionality. You mean easy, an easy one? Yes, mm. easy, easy, light, not, not tense, but gentle, a gentle intentionality, which people who've chosen to come to this room tonight do have. There is at least some intentionality to connect to that space. Exactly. Right. And silence helps. Yes, it certainly does help. Mm. Um, and then you begin to realize there's another kind of silence in the midst of activity that you can be tapped into. And you just more and more... A lot of people think that it's much more um, deliberate that this that this shift starts to happen in, in that they think that they have to be thinking about these things, like I have to be thinking about the primordial force or something. <laughs> but it's not like that at all. It's that the, like I say, the grip on the personal story starts to ease up and no longer be the primary focus. And then there's a natural feeling of connectedness and of moving about in a very large space, which in fact you are. Mm. You are moving about in a very large space. Mm. And that's where I feel, we feel the oneness and the support, the comfort. Yes. Mm. The acceptance, mm -hmm. the acceptance of what is. Yes. I've been praying to be able to hear more from, from my spirit and then of course I hear it's all around so just look yes and just deeply relax let go this grip of this personal story all the time I'm not saying and I really want to emphasize this because I think so many people on the spiritual journey mistake this point I'm not saying that you no longer tell a personal story. Personal story arises completely on its own and has, has a life of its own. And it just goes on and on as far as I can tell. That's not the problem. It's the obsession. It's the, the constant giving of all of the attention to that story, to that stream of I, me, me, mine. Mm. However, if one, me, I've been thinking about writing a memoir, how do, do I get around that? Because that's, oh. that's me, mine. Yes, but you can tell that story in very big space. Mm. As though you're telling it about someone else almost. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's how, that's, it's not exactly like that, but it's similar. That even as you're living your own story, if your awareness is more or less diffuse and no longer just gripped on this, this little thing, this little tiny blink in time that's going to be long forgotten, when that releases into a much bigger space, then you almost have this kind of, you have this this friendly attitude, almost humorous. Yes, that's the word. Mm -hmm. A humorous relationship <laughs> yeah. to to the creature that you are. I mean, I often refer to myself as this Catherine creature, and I think of it as like a, a an unruly pet that I take care of. 
that is incredibly demanding. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> has to be cleaned, has to be fed, has, has you know, has all kinds of things it likes and doesn't like, and and it's a job taking care of it. But th- there's a part of my awareness that just sort of sees it like that. You understand? Yeah, I do. And I used to have this whole thing, this whole notion about when the grip about the personal me was stronger. Not only was I beleaguered under all the dislikes and the likes and the stories of the past and what might happen in the future, but I also had a posthumous story that I had to deal with. In other words, I had to sort of, I had this idea that I wanted my life to be somehow recorded or somehow like making a mark here. And this is another area that you get relief from. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't write your memoir. Do it if it's fun and you feel called to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I write. It's fun. If it's fun, yes, it definitely. Unless fun. you have to make money doing that. If that gets you money and you have to make money doing it that way. But no, no problem with with any of the expressions. But just not to think that it's going to give you some immortality. Mm. You know, that even that idea starts to loosen up. Mm-hmm you realize immortality is already happening. It's not happening about you. You're probably not immortal, but it's happening on its own. So you begin to switch the identification into this other sense. I often say you begin to identify with the eternal presence, but only for a little while. Just while you're here, you get to have a sense of it. I'm going to reread your book. Yes, oh, yes. yes. It, it explains time. some of it's this. It's time. I some reread of that. it. Yes, very good. Thank Lovely. You. This isn't a burning question, but I've noticed um, when I, I, I don't know what the Dharma Dialogues is anymore. I mean, and what I mean by that is that I come to hear things, um, but I really come to experience something. Yes. And uh, I know the kind of the, the satsang uh, Nazi rule is that you're not supposed to, uh, the experiences, you know, come and go. It's what, you know, what's behind all that. But for me, I kind of get goofy and giddy around here. I have to admit, um, I've uh, I've gone to a couple of things in the last couple of months where they either touch your forehead or put your hands on your head and give you supposedly, you know, some kind of transfer or something, I don't know. And um, that's not what's supposed to happen here. And I get much more strong in here than anything. It just it just kind of um, reams out my head and my belly. The chronic knot in my belly starts to loosen up. And and I really have strong experiences. And, and uh, you're not saying that you're doing anything. But I'm saying I don't know what's going on here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a kind of... Um entrainment that happens when and you've been coming for years and years so that you walk in the room and that entrainment that cellular memory kicks in and really what's happening is you've come here to be with you you're you have come here to be with the you that is relaxed that doesn't have the knot in the belly that doesn't have to hold up the world on its shoulders that doesn't have to be anybody in particular and knows it's going to die, and can kind of relax with that thought as well. That's why it feels 
like you're going to explode in, in a way because it's a release of, of all of that other kind of enshrining of concepts and dreams and hopes and fears and all that stuff. It's the power of gathering like this. It's, it's an amazingly effective and simple format. You've come here to be with you. The true, the deepest, most fundamental, essential nature of yourself. And it's just a, a reminder as you walk in the room, that's all that's happening. I mean, really, I could probably just, you know, read the phone book or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to be concerned about well it goes away when i leave <laughs> and you know it does and it, you know sometimes it hangs around for longer and uh at this point that's not a dilemma so it's really nice i can come back yes exactly you know, right yeah and and also i mean and i know you know this that it comes over you at other times it's just the, the remembrance, and that's all we're talking about. We're not talking about an it that invades your awareness. It's an, a remembrance that comes. So what I'm saying, and I, I really do recommend this, is that just letting that be, the like just recognize tonight, here and now, that it's an intelligent response to let this be an intention in one's life. That's an intelligent thing. I mean, when you think about how you're going to spend your awareness moments, right? Your awareness units <laughs> till you're dead. How are you going to spend those? So you, we'll, we'll leave a certain amount for hissy fits, right? <laughs> we'll leave a percentage. How much percentage you want to leave for those? Not a lot, but I will. I'll give a lot to it. Just okay, ten percent. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot. Ten, ten percent. Okay, and then another percentage uh, in pursuit of objects and experiences. <laughs> another, <laughs> another seventy-five. Well, you can be at the. You can give seventy-five to that. <laughs> That's the typing part, right? <laughs> so what? What you? What you begin to assess is this: this notion of how much? You know, how much time do I want to spend in regret? Things I can't do anything about. Worry, worry about things that are probably not going to happen the way that I'm worrying about them. Other things may happen that I never even worried about. <laughs> but in any case, so you start to really think of it almost mathematically in a kind of application of your own intelligence, your own discernment. How do you want to spend your awareness? Where do you want to have it rest? Where do you want to have it be conditioned? So this habit of freedom is a kind of conditioning. And when you recognize that very strongly it starts to just more and more deepen on its own. And it's not a matter of having to sort of wake up in the morning and think, oh, I've got to do my freedom practice. I need to, I don't, I don't want to blow my percentage today. I want to, it's more that you, in this deep heartfelt recognition, 
it just starts to be more and more the way that your attention will go. And even though you will spend your dips into the hissy fits and the cravings and so on, you find you're not as wholehearted in the hissy fit as you used to be or in the in the expectation of the craving. I was watching Charlie Rose last night and it might have been from a previous night because I had it on a TiVo. The author, Michael Cunningham, was being interviewed and he was saying that after he won the Pulitzer Prize, he went into a depression, a very intense depression, (laughs) because he recognized that in a way there was nowhere else to go in terms of his his ambitions and also that he was in what he called the pre-has-been phase. <laughs> so I mean here's you know here's the way the mind can just torture right no matter what happens no matter what experience no matter what object you get no matter what glorification the way that the mind can just beat you up on its own because your habit is all about me 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 and more me so when this is released when this is just then you, you you begin to realize, oh, this day is too precious for me to be worried about being in my pre-has-been phase. <laughs> you just you just don't can't afford it, <laughs> and that's the kind of discernment, relaxation, whatever you want to call it, that starts to get stronger and stronger on its own. And then you're just going about your day, you're living, but you're fe- you feel more like you're living, I don't know how to say this, in a larger historical context. That you're here for this particular blink in time, but the great stretches of eternity are bookending your life. And you just have a much roomier feel about all of it. And then you can hear the crickets. And then you can hear the crickets exactly. Indeed. And and then you can also notice all the little sweet things that are happening in your own life. I think one of the things that is profoundly sad actually is the way that for so many people the recognition of how precious life is comes only at the end only at the end do they realize oh my god you know how one more moment of even boredom would be so precious right or one more moment of a broken heart or one more moment of anything almost anything and we tend to squander it quite a bit. I mean, I think everybody does that to some degree. We squander it. We, you know, our percentages fluctuate. Some of us are hopeless. We're in the 99 percentile. (laughs) You're not so hopeless, though. (laughs) So this is an honoring of the preciousness of this, 
a recognition of the intelligence of how to be here for this, how to show up, how to enjoy it, how to feel truly intimate with life, with all those who you're sharing life with at this particular moment in time. You start to reflect on these kinds of things that of all the creatures of all time, from the past and to come, you happen to be here with these. (laughs) You start to feel that incredible camaraderie that, as chance has it, in the great stretches of eternity, here we are in the same moment, sharing the same moment together, and made of the same essence. And as as your identification with this small, contracted little me frees up, those are the kinds of considerations that become more your habit. That's why I'm always so delighted in retreats, because these kinds of reflections start to come very naturally and easily to people. They tap into this sort of universal perspective about life itself and about the interconnection, about the tenderness, about the beauty. And it all just gets so clear and obvious. So clear and obvious that we all have had this experience. You think, oh, I could never forget this. (laughs) Now I get it. (laughs) But the old habits are strong. Let's give them their due. And, you know, I say a lot, the old habits, I think, are very genetically programmed. That's why they're so strong. They're biologically programmed. Mm. The fight for I, me, mine. The fear that comes up at the possible loss of something. All of this is hardwired in a certain way, biologically. And we have to honor that as well. Just know that that's part of what's going on. But we no longer have to be a slave to it. It can arise. You can feel those feelings. You can feel the kind of animalistic panic at the slightest inconvenience. Because it's it's like... (laughs) Or as I said in my book, somebody cuts you off on the freeway You know, and you have this rage response, like kill. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I didn't act on it. Good. (laughs) What percent have you had it? (laughs) 101. (laughs) So this becomes... The new conditioning, that's all. And you, you have it very strongly, because it's true, you've said it many times, that when you, you, as soon as you walk in the room, it starts happening for you. That's strong conditioning. At the supply, I mean, the air coming in the windows, and it just feels like I'm... Um... Can you use the mic, dear? Oh, yeah. Um, it's just, you know, my times in here are very poignant. Mm-hmm. It just reminds me, when, we were, when you were at that incredible house in, uh, in the Palisades on Big Rock, you know, on a weekend and the sun's going down and all of a sudden it's just at nighttime. It feels like life has come to an end. You know, it's just, I mean, these moments are. Yeah. 
and then I'm just being washed by this wind. And yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Um, have you said that love was the one power that lasts, yes. like, and the possibility of living with a broken heart? Um, so I really came tonight with a question, but I've been sitting here trying to formulate it. Um, I would just solicit some help because probably it's a common question that everyone has. I have found, you know, the search for a, a, a love of another person in one's life can be quite challenging and all the associated issues. And then I question what is it that I'm really longing for? What is it that I'm really searching for? Okay, I, it's easy to perhaps say, you know, I'm just looking to find my true self or I'm searching for God or searching for union with the infinite, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, but this one particular question has come up recently, and this might be of some interest. I found that I love very, very easily. Just my, it's mm -hmm. my personality. I, mm -hmm. I love, I fall in love. I meet someone. I love them, you know, mm -hmm. within, mm -hmm. you know, a week or two. So. And do, are you speaking about romantic yeah, love romantic or love, every yes. other kind of love? Uh, and, and I find, well, interestingly enough, I always say this, that even like if I need to meet a new male friend, yes. if I feel a connection, I feel very close to them immediately. Yeah. It's just my Your way. way of drawing myself. But, but then I've questioned, well, am I doing this for some kind of acceptance or some kind of perhaps even ego gratification to know that I love and can be loved in return? Anyway, so the question is that perhaps... I have loved easily, and then I receive love in return quite easily as well, but then it doesn't seem to last, and it doesn't go on to a marriage or a long-term relationship. So I actually heard someone say, not to me in particular, but it resonated, that perhaps when one does this, you find someone, you love them, but yet you're not really willing or able to commit to them and perhaps the reason you're doing this is you select people or you find people or you're comfortable with people to whom you are not able to commit so that you don't have to suffer the possibility of rejection so therefore you go on perhaps i don't i, I don't know it's been a short time for me but uh, through a series of these non-committal but very deeply loving relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. that's the question I came with tonight. What is the question? How many questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. That may be more of a commentary, but the question is, is that what's happening, that you may love someone easily and then not commit or find someone you don't have to, to commit to so that you don't have to suffer through the possibility of betrayal or rejection. I mean, certainly that sounds like a possibility, yeah. but only you can really know what's going on with you. Only you can know. I mean, this domain of romantic love is so highly charged and complicated. And my, my inclination is always to point people to their own wholeness first. 
So I would say to you, you only really have the one thing to be cognizant of, and it's what we're speaking about tonight. It's the aspect of you that is fine, that is whole, that is unstained and untouched by your story. Not to, not to take away the story, but just that it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the essence, the fundamentalness of you. Like when Stan was speaking about coming in here, and it's like this remembrance of, oh, that's right, that's the essence of me. To really get comfortable in that as much and as quickly as you can. And then see what's left or see what comes from that vantage point. It may be that the truth is you don't do long-term relationships. It may be that's the truth. But you'll know that from your own wholeness. You understand what I'm saying? Or it may be that in this wholeness, in this feeling of of okayness in your own skin, it does somehow free up old patterns or whatever, diminish the fear. Because when you're actually feeling whole in your own skin, the coming and going of somebody else, while it can hurt, no doubt, but it, it no longer will collapse you. It no longer will really be that scary. You start to see everyone's going to go anyway in time, and so are you. So, you know, that that gets loosened up as well. But moreover, the main thing I want to say is that you will come into your own authenticity in a really strong, clear way. And if it's true for you that you don't do long-term relationships, then you rest in the dignity of that. And you stop laboring under a story that says you should be other than as you are. You know, we all don't have to be cookie cutter in the long marriage thing. You know, it's a very arbitrary, socially imposed idea on a bunch of animals that, <laughs> as we know, aren't that great at it. And <laughs> Especially you boys. <laughs> Well, I was married for 23 years. Were you? Yes, I was. Oh my God. Well, what are you talking about? It doesn't count anymore. Okay. No, so that's the model that I'm relating to. I I'm see. relating to the model of having the, the next 23 year okay. committed relationship. So then when I was set free from that, I assumed that it would happen again. Yeah. You know, I assumed that was my pattern or that was my destiny or my life script or whatever. Okay, well, what I'm saying is staying in really your deep truth of who you are, which, you know, cannot predict the future, but is very much connected to the now, you'll just watch and see what happens. And, and I'll use this phrase again, because it's an important one, you will rest in the dignity of your own experience of life. And I recommend, I'm not speaking just to you in this, of course, Lots of people, another aspect of the way that they, that they labor under concepts is 
they think their life should look differently. And a lot of it is conditioned by society, that you should have been doing something else or you should have done this or that or whatever, you know, and you should have had the marriage and the kids. And and if that happens to be one's destiny, oh, so fabulous. But if it happens not to be, then what a shame to fight against it all the way to the end. What a shame to not sort of inhabit the truth of your own life and who you are and what you are and making no apologies about that. So sitting again, relaxing into your own deep water and seeing how it looks. My grandmother, um, all of my grandparents are dead now, but one grandmother was the last to go. And and I rarely went home to Virginia to visit, maybe once or twice a year. But every time I would see her, she she was the woman who had like a miserable marriage, and was she was basically a a slave. She had nine children; they were very poor, um, very very poor, and she had a really tough tough life. But every time I would see her, she would say, "When are you going to get married?" (laughs) you know are you about to get is there anybody on the you know just (laughs) and I always felt I was disappointing her for the longest time when I would have to say oh no I'm not married yet and no I'm not getting married and no there's no one who's going to be marrying me it seems (laughs) Um, (laughs) and, um, and, and she would shake her head and say, you know, well, you're getting older. And, <laughs> and I would have this kind of mini collapse. But after a while, you know, I would walk in there and I would, it, the, the collapse wouldn't be there anymore. I would joke with her about it. I mean, I would just joke with her about it. And I, I would never, ever say to her, why would you want me to get, be in the same predicament you've been in? <laughs> but, but I would just joke with her about, you know, my own way of seeing it. And she kind of, over time, you know, she would still ask me, but she would not, she would not have the sort of disappointment factor going with it as well. But it's those kinds of moments that condition us very, very strongly. And all of the media and the advertising and, and, you know, the society we live in, it's a story that is very, very strong. Just like I was saying, the biological story is very strong. Well, but unfortunately, there... men are conditioned in the opposite direction to to not get married and to hook up and to have short-term relationships. And I've never seen that as a, a viable lifestyle. Right. Mm-hmm. I've always seen a long-term stable So then what we can say is that what you would, what you want is a more long-term, stable relationship. That's what you want. Okay, now the truth of it may be that, well, that's a lovely thing, and, and if you can have that at some point, fabulous, great. But what if you don't? What if... Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you just say, okay, and dignify your life and enjoy your precious life? You know, you did have the 23 years, and... You start to say yes to your life as it is, which is another aspect of freedom. People who are 
married and in happy marriages, that's very lucky. It's wonderful. It's very lucky, no doubt. But, you know, it's not that common. Fifty percent divorce rate. More, is it? Sixty percent? Something like that. And then of the others that are together, how what is the percentage of that that are happy? So we're down now, you know, way under the majority of people. It's a noble, wonderful thing to enjoy that, to have that. But if you happen not to have that, can that be okay? Can you just relax and find intimacy with your women friends, your men friends, your, the children in your life, the parents in your life? You find, in fact, when you're not in relationship, not in that specific other, the one, the spousal other, you do have a lot more time for all the rest, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you do, you do have a, a lot of intimacy if you want it. A lot of intimacy, a lot of friendships and connections and very sweet moments with people. I'm not saying you can't have that in relationship. I'm just saying just the time alone t- takes up more time and focus and mental energy. So, yeah, you start to feel, instead of deprivation, you start to feel abundance. And then if that comes into your life, it comes in to abundance. It comes into the abundance of who you are, into the largesse of you, instead of, oh, God, thank God you've arrived in the nick of time. (laughs) Right? A kind of desperation. People walk around as though they're halves, looking for their other half to make a whole. Isn't it? People, you know, traditionally, yeah, they speak of it, my other half. Their better half. Yes, their better half is a famous one. And the notion of soulmate. Oh, my God, having that idea to find your soulmate. (laughs) These are ideas of suffering. So you come back to your real sanctuary to your own wholeness that doesn't need another half. And then you, if you happen to be with another, then you are as two wholes together. And in your wholeness, you will attract more likely another whole. You will not be attractive to, and it's a good thing, someone who's super desperate and wants you to fill up their emptiness, which you can never do. And then your notion of relationship starts to shift. And it's much more about having having a friend to celebrate life with and to go through the hard times, but mainly as a kind of walking together, side by side. Well, the part I want you to also notice that can sound wonderful is your own aloneness. Start there, actually. Hi. I have a question about, you know, on the spiritual path where we want to be expansive, like what you're talking about, and definitely feel so much better. 
I have a question about judging because I know that's not, you know, we don't want to be judgmental. But we can't help it. And, yeah. Judging rises. <laughs> when I used to be a practicing Buddhist, which is a long time ago now, I did it for a long, long time, but it has been a long time since then. One of the most depressing things that we heard over and over again was that if we practiced long and hard enough, judging would drop away. And I knew <laughs> that in my case, <laughs> things were getting worse, right? I mean, it, it just, it's highly conditioned, very highly conditioned. And I would even say that some people are highly sensitive, so they're judging maybe even more because they notice more, right? I mean, if somebody's oblivious and hardly noticing anything, they may be less judging. But is that some sort of high state? In any case, judging comes up. It arises. And in some ways, you could even see it as forms of a discernment. Now, what you do with that is another matter. You know, what you do with it. If you're judging and you're laying your opinions and trips and, and mean mm -hmm. thoughts onto other people and saying hurtful things and doing hurtful things, then, then that's a problem. And you will know it's a problem because the feedback from the world <laughs> is such that it makes your life kind of miserable. But my, actually I have a, well, it's a, you, kind of a specific type of judgment or, or a specific okay. question about judgment. Um, it's also hard for me to articulate it. Well, there's someone that's very close to me that's that's entered into the, a relationship. She left a marriage to go into another relationship. And this person that she went to was one of her close friend's husband. So this is really hard for me to accept this. And I, I don't want to, you know, I still love this person very much, but I also feel like I I should say something about this, you know, about it just feels so off, and yet she feels this is her soulmate. And there are other aspects. This fellow has parts that seem quite questionable as far as his ethics along with this. So I feel like I should say something, and yet what do you say when someone feels so in love and they feel like this is their soulmate? Yeah, I mean, it's quite likely, I don't know this person, but it's quite likely that Nothing you say is going to particularly change the situation at this moment. But if you're feeling that you can't be with her without this elephant of compromise in the room with you, in other words, if you just sort of need to clear the air, and I would recommend keeping it with your own feelings, that the situation has made you uncomfortable and that you do have judgment arising, but that you do love her. All of that you, you've just said. If you can say that in a clean, clear way, and if you feel that that is necessary to kind of even just be with her, because you're right, sometimes somebody's behavior is such that you feel if you don't say something, you're the one compromised. You're, you're like swallowing something, and it becomes very difficult to even be in their presence. So sometimes, and one has to be judicious about the use of this, but sometimes you do have to speak up. 
You know, I, I often use the phrase, you, you sometimes have to get out the sword. You never do it with any relish, but sometimes it has to be done. And I don't mean for you to slash her about her life necessarily, but rather to keep it with your own discomfort that the situation has made you uncomfortable. You also feel some concern for her, etc., but that you just need to put this out and you don't have an expectation about what results from you putting it out, just that you have to say it. And that you, that you do still deeply love her. Make sure that's part of it. And these kinds of feelings in relationships go on and on. This kind of material keeps coming. Situations, you have to pick and choose what you're going to speak up about, what you're going to be silent about. A lot of the stuff you can be silent about. A lot of it is, you know, insignificant, petty, doesn't need to be even said, even though you may have a judgment about friends' behavior, your parents or anybody. A lot of what they're up to, you just have to say, also, you know. <laughs> but there are moments, there are situations that are more, more challenging. Again, you sit in your own authenticity and you trust it. You trust it to be kind also, but honest. I often think of Jesus' line attributed to Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's such a brilliant line. And it applies to so many, so many things that are going on. You look out and you just see, oh my gosh, the ignorance is just staggering. And you find yourself thinking, forgive them for they know not what they do. They have, don't have a clue about the repercussions. Thank you. One of the things that I like about coming here is that you seem to articulate what I experience spiritually. And you say it, and I'm like, oh, that's it. But I didn't have the words mm -hmm. to express that. Mm -hmm. So thank you. I, it's really, uh, that, I, that helps me to relax. Yes, and feel confident in your own understanding. Hugely. Yeah. Very much so. I think I've gained so much of that from coming here. Yeah. And I, and I feel fortunate, not I'm, I am also one of those lucky ones with a wonderful marriage. Yes. <laughs> but that, and that we come here together. Yes. And that we have so many friends and sources in our life that connect us to the primordial source. Yes. And so it was funny when we were coming here today, I was like, here we go. And we always seem to invite some friends and, and we're like, it's always us, you know, we can't, there's some people with, that just don't seem to draw in. And I'm, and I started to doubt myself, like, what's wrong with me that I'm the one going here? And, and why do I have these stack of books? I, I, I don't always sit, I hardly read fiction. You know, I, I think I enjoy more movies and stories to watch, but when it comes to books, I'm like hungry for more spiritual understanding and so many aspects of my life. It's like, I'm still, I, I don't even want to say hungry anymore, but that it just feels so good mm. 
to have that to to relax more into it yeah yeah and that that i do become hungry for more of it that it it's like this is so much nicer than all that drama yeah all the swimming in neurosis all day long but yeah. i still but so the, the what comes up and i think i always ask you this but it still gets stuck in that swimming of that neurosis but not entirely it frees up at some point yeah i mean yeah not 24/7 yeah. no not even close no but there are moments where it does feel like i am just so stuck in me 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 mine right and, that's common and that and i think we talked about like going into the deep water and i'm like i'm at the surface and, <laughs> and actually that really helped me last time we talked about that because it's because we also scuba dive and so oh. and <laughs> and so it reminds me that there's so many times that being at the surface is so uncomfortable that going down that when i'm when I can't relax and I'm sitting in a meditation that I have that image of going down. Oh, that's great. Like the scuba diving. Yes. Because go, so then being down there is so much more quiet. Yes. Yes. So it helps me to go. But I just wondered if you had any other ways or ideas to relax more. When I'm stuck at the surface... The, the two things that I can say to respond to that, which I've been saying for so many years, but first of all, just simply notice how good it feels mm. in the quiet. When you're in that, when you're in a kind of relaxed phase, whether in a day or in general in your life, have an appreciation for it. And when you're in the dip of neurosis, when you're in the contracted, I, me, mine, like the little kid screaming in a corner, notice what that feels like. And let your discernment come up. Can I afford this in my precious life? Mm. How much percentage can I spend on this today? Mm. Just let your awareness start to track it a bit. And you begin to just naturally, very naturally and easily, without a big practice idea without a kind of training idea, just, you know, you spoke about loving this, about how you had a hunger for this. And it reminded me of Punjaji's phrase, holy yearning. He used to call that particular desire a holy yearning. And it had its own category, separate from other kinds of craving. It's a holy craving, a holy yearning that wants to go deeper into the quiet of simply being, of just being at ease in your own self, in your own sweet self, loving that and wanting to spend a lot of time there. And even though the other stuff comes up, you're not going to fight with it. You're not going to make yourself <clears throat> wrong for having phases of neurosis dips into anger, depression, worry, whatever it happens to be. But you you know that you really can't afford a long time in those conditions. So then it's just light, you know? These moods come through and they're light. Even if they're kind of, they have a blue quality. Like in my own case, my own personality type is such that it you know, it would, it would interpret things in a kind of melancholy way, just as a habit. That's what my habit of since childhood has been. 
But now I, I kind of enjoy it like a movie, like a sad movie. <laughs> I mean, I'll feel it. And sometimes things will make me cry and or I'll get into a kind of a sad mood and I'll feel it. It's not, it's not that I don't know that that's happening, but it's not landing anywhere. And I know that. So I don't care that it's there and I don't care how long it stays. That's the other piece is that sometimes I'll go like, okay, here it is. Yeah. But then I get worried about how long it's going to stay. And so I guess that's the other piece of like letting go of doesn't matter how long it stays. Right. Let's, let's try to get a visual image here. Your awareness is like a sky. And so this is a cloud mm-hmm. passing through the sky. So you don't care how long, how slow the cloud is moving. You don't care how large it is. Mm-hmm. You don't care if it has rain coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's in the sky. And you know that. You see? Mm-hmm. So even when large things happen, huge things happen, the death of my brother, a huge thunderstorm of grief moving glacially slow across the sky. Mm -hmm. But I knew it was moving through the sky of being. More and more I come to, to... that understanding where the personal is allowed, the moods, the passing, everything is allowed, but you have this sense of vast inner space. And you more and more love that feeling. You love the feeling of vast inner space. You no longer feel like you're in a very crowded, tiny closet. Yeah. It's that jumping back to what you talk about, the observer that's watching it rather than being stuck in it. Yeah. I like to say coexisting awareness because if we say the words like witness or observer, Mm -hmm. people get confused and picture some sort of entity standing like a Greek chorus outside. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know. Sometimes it feels like a Greek chorus. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know what you mean. (laughs) But a coexisting awareness, an awareness that knows that the, the little mood is there and is, is in that, and another awareness that is in the big, vast space. This has been In the Deep. You can find our podcast channel on iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms, or on our website, katherineingram.com where you can also find the schedule of upcoming events or book a private session. We're grateful for your support in the way of donations. Your donation is tax deductible in the USA, and we ask you to consider an end-of-the-year donation, end of the financial year in the U.S. And of course, donations are welcome from anywhere else in the world. If that is not possible, I know we're in hard times for many people, we also welcome a review on whatever platform you're listening. Till next time.